0: Well, opens with a short word of prayer. Lord in heaven, we ask that you illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to rightly hear and to understand and to apply your word that you have for us, Lord. Your word is precious. Your word is wonderful. And Lord, may we always focus on caring for others more than we focus on glorifying ourselves. Lord, Your Word is precious, and may uh, it always fill our very being. And we lift this time up to You, Lord, in Your Son's name. Amen. Well, I do want to thank You for the opportunity to share with you. uh, It is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And, yes, go right ahead. and. you know, it was 50 years ago that the Supreme Court came down with the Roe versus Wade ruling. And all these years, of course, we rallied to have that overturned. And it has been overturned. And that's a time to rejoice. <clears throat> but it's still, I think, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we need to continue to remember that human life is sacred. Because the overturning of roe v. Wade certainly didn 't have the effect i guess that maybe we prayed for, because now there's so many states that're going to put it into their laws that allow they 're going to allow the right to an abortion, and I think Washington is amongst the worst of them. There are still many states that are trying to do the right thing uh, but I don't think we can be surprised. We know that we can't legislate people into righteousness. And we also know that Satan is going to continue his work until the Lord returns. So on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we do focus on abortion and birth, But we've seen a great time here already this morning that we can celebrate the new birth. And all of these baptisms are just a wonderful announcement of the work Christ has done in their lives. So when I spoke last in August, I talked about our significance to God. And I used Psalm 139 as the reference for that. And I briefly shared about my mother, my birth mother, Catherine. Well, there's a little more to that story. So when I shared with you about my mother's pregnancy, she, it was unexpected, and it was out of wedlock. And of course, for the 1950s, it was a severe social stigma. I also shared with you that she was a surgical nurse. And as a result, her colleagues, her de- medical doctor colleagues, offered her an abortion. And it would have been easy. But thankfully, at least from from my point of view, thankfully she chose life, (laughs) you know. Uh. Because I know from uh, letters I've I've read from her, that she, uh, some of her friends in the nursing profession did go through abortions, even in the 50s. So anyway, uh, I'm thankful she chose life, and she put me up for adoption. Now, during her pregnancy, she met a decent fellow named David. Similar to King David, but David, he operated, ran a service station. And four months after I was born, David and Catherine got married. And I could tell from my mother's letters that she was very much in love. She had found the love of her life. Now, a couple of months after that, when I was a mere six months old, Catherine and David decided to drive from Tacoma to Pennsylvania so that they they could visit her family. Now, in Minnesota, David and Catherine were involved in a tragic collision. Four people died, including Catherine and David. So, as I learned about this growing up, I began to ponder things, because... You know, at age six, I was aware of Catherine's death. I had a copy of the obituary. But later, as I grew older, I began to piece the circumstances together. And I believe the Lord used these circumstances to call me to Him. Because I pondered this for a long time. See, Catherine could have had an abortion, it would have been so easy to cover her shame. And I realized that I should have died then. Catherine and David could have kept me. I have no doubt that David would have treated me as his own. I have no doubt they would, they would have loved me. But then I could have been in that collision. I realized I should have died then. But yet I was adopted into a loving family that cared for me. But I thought it must be God. I shouldn't be here. And yet here I am. So why would God be involved in my life before I was born? See, our God, our Lord is vast and magnificent and yet... Did he reach down, concerned about my life? See, what am I? What am I that God would think about me? What am I that God would watch over me? And I think these same questions gripped King David, who is the writer of Psalm 8. Because in Psalm 8, he asks, What is man that you, God, care for him? So let's read... Psalm 8. And hear what David has to say. So this is the English Standard Version. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens all sheep and oxen, also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, Psalm 8 has only 68 Hebrew words, but it is huge in its message. So the first thing to understand Psalm 8, you must uh, have a little bit of a framework. And that framework begins with these summary statements at the beginning and the end. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now David is not saying that the earth expresses the totality of God's majesty. No, no. David wants to proclaim the majesty of the Lord's name to all the earth. And so this is just a simple literary device to help in that expression. And it's also helpful that when you read Psalm 8, because you know, in the second half of verse 1 through verse 8, somehow, it, some measure explains how the Lord's name is majestic in all the earth. So if any verse seems difficult to understand, you start with the basic question of, How does this verse proclaim God's majesty in all the earth? And it's the essential question to understanding this psalm because everything in this psalm proclaims God's majesty. The word we don't seldom use. Now the second thing that's important to understand in Psalm 8, that it is both prophetic and messianic. See, this psalm is a clear instance where you can let The New Testament help you understand the Old Testament. Now, if you remember after Jesus' resurrection, they're on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus joins these two disciples as they're walking along. But, of course, he prevents them from recognizing him. So Jesus patiently listens to them for a while. And then finally, they ask Jesus... Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? I don't know about you, but I find that kind of ironic that they would ask that question of the only person who knew what had really happened that day. Kind of a hint that maybe God has a sense of humor. Anyway, so Jesus answered them and said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe... In all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then Jesus goes on to explain to them how the Old Testament speaks of him. And so Psalm 8, Psalm 8 speaks significantly about Jesus because you'll see that verse 2 is quoted by Jesus. And then verses 4 to 8 are quoted to tell us about Jesus. So unlike many other references of the Old Testament in the New Testament, Psalm 8 is referenced almost in its entirety. So to understand this psalm, we have to realize that Jesus also expresses God's majesty in all the earth. So David starts... Of course, with creation, and air reminded us of the uh, sunrise this morning. And I think there's plenty to see of God's majesty in creation itself. Creation is clearly one way God has made His majesty clear to us. The second half of verse one, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse one, David contemplates the splendor of God's creation. And in it, God shows us something of himself. Now, Thomas Jefferson, of all people, asked and answered an important question. Do we want to know what God is? Now, Jefferson's answer was, search not the book called Scripture, which any human hand might make, but the Scripture called creation. Now, Jefferson clearly did not consider the Bible to be the Word of God. In fact, he, uh, he wrote an edited Bible. He took out the stuff he didn't like and added, kept what he liked and added stuff to it. Anyway, but still, Jefferson could perceive, to some extent, that the creation speaks wonderfully of God. And the Holy Scriptures, you know, Jefferson may have despised the Holy Scriptures, but they tell us so. Psalm 19 begins with, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And we don't need to go far. We can watch the sunrise like this morning's. We can watch a sunset. We can see the mountains, the sandy beaches of Kalalok, and so many of you that hike the mountain trails they all proclaim God's majesty. Even the dirt, the soil, proclaims God's majesty because where do we get flowers for beauty and trees for fruit and food? But in magnificent soil. So God's glory is reflected in creation. And therefore, I believe we should adore God. Adore God for who He is. Now the second place in this psalm, Where God's majesty is announced is in children. See, David sees God's majesty displayed in children, right? (laughs) Sorry, too much fun over here. Anyway, God's glory is reflected in his creative artistry at the microscopic level. Now, when I talked last time, which was last August, I shared that I believe that the mother's womb is where God does His most creative and beautiful work. And I think Psalm 139 states that, because it says in there that for you, that's God, formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Can we help but not think about DNA? I mean, this verse in and of itself is enough to proclaim God's majesty. But in Psalm 8, verse 2, David writes, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, if that verse gives you any problems, don't be concerned about that, because this verse is cleared up for us in the New Testament. Now, the word strength, it means the strength or the witness for God from the mouths of infants. In fact, it highlights a very common biblical theme of true strength coming through weakness. So let's let Scripture give us understanding, and that that understanding comes in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, word is written, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Now it kind of caught me there. They became indignant of the children not the wonderful things Jesus had been doing. So anyway, they became indignant and said to him, Do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, Yes. Have you not read out to the mouth of infants and nursing babes, Thou hast prepared praise for yourself? I, I don't think it's a, it, we can gain any better understanding than from Jesus himself and I think the enemy and revengeful, spoken of in Psalm 8, verse 2, speak in some sense of the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 21. But you see the importance of this verse to the gospel. You see, we have children announcing the coming of the Messiah, God's glory and majesty announced through the lips of children. So, I don't find it any wonder that Satan tries to destroy children. Because Satan will always try to destroy any witness of God's glory. I think about our culture. Are children considered a blessing? Hmm. Well, not always. (laughs) <laughs> you just have to just have to watch the news. They're not considered a blessing by so many, and I couldn't help but think of Luke chapter one verse eighteen, where we have Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, and Scripture's clear that they were advanced in years, and yet God was going to bless them with a son. Now our culture would step in and say. Zacharias, Elizabeth, you're too old to have children. Elizabeth, if you, you could die if you carry that child to term. You're too old. You guys are definitely too old to properly care for a child. You see, our culture would say, Zacharias and Elizabeth, you need to abort that child because you will suffer. But what does God say? You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And we just have to look at Mary. You have this young woman engaged but pregnant. Divorce was imminent, and the penalty for such a thing was stoning. So what would our culture say? I think our culture would say, Mary, you're too young. You can't care for a child. No, Mary, society is going to dump you so fast. In fact, they might stone you. No. Mary, your fiancé will leave you. You can't care for a child. Mary, you need to abort that child because you will suffer. But what does God say? God says you have found favor with God. Psalm 127 reminds us that children are a blessing. And I think Jesus on the day of his birth became the ultimate blessing for mankind. Now I know when Jesus returns, he will completely fulfill the promise of verse 2. And will do away with the enemies and the revengeful. But, But until then, we have to wait and hope. See, God's majesty is displayed in His creation, both in the heavens, the earth, and through children. But David also sees that God's majesty is displayed through mankind. Now, here's where you you kind of have to ask yourself a tough question Where is your glory and majesty? Is your glory and majesty in the things you've accomplished? Is it in the events you've influenced? Maybe uh, you've been to war and it's in the medals you've earned. Your status in the community? Or maybe your glory comes from your special abilities. Now, I don't think Christians are really immune from self-glorification, how many glory in the perceived greatness of their faith how many glory in their knowledge of the bible and frankly how many glory because they preached to thousands no verse 5 and 6 tell us yet you that's god you made him a little lower in the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honor. You God, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. So any true majesty and glory I have, that you have, comes from God alone. And any glory, any glory, any majesty, that I have made for myself is absolutely worthless. And Jesus understood this. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Now, this grabbed my attention a bit when I read that and reread that. And it should grab your attention, because Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, it just doesn't get any bigger than that, but the incarnate Son of God would not glorify himself. So I had to ask myself, is it okay for me to glorify myself? I don't think so. God made man supreme over the created world, and this was true before the fall of Adam, but God's authority... You know, he ultimately has authority over his creation. And, of course, man's authority doesn't supersede God's. Now, the vocation God appointed to Adam was to be in charge of the garden. And mankind was made to rule nature, to master it, and to enjoy its fruits. And all this to the glory of God the Creator. So we may like to think of our dominion over the created world in some sort of idealistic terms where we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whatever we want. But we have to remember that we're still under the curse of Adam. Because I think, being realistic about it, all I would have to do is bring a rattlesnake in here and let it loose. And I don't think too many of you would feel dominion at that particular moment. Kind of reminds me of a story from Tom, but I can't. He'll have to tell it to us. <clears throat> so we just have to realize that we don't see the subjection of all things to us yet, but we will, because our authority and dignity has certain limitations. But I think this points to the fact that Psalm, the promise here in Psalm 8 really awaits fulfillment, and it, from our part it awaits fulfillment, but with Jesus it was fulfilled, and we see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 13. Now, there wasn't enough time to take a deep dive into this uh, section. There's just too much here, but the epistle And the reason that that, um, I say that's a fulfillment of this with Jesus is because that is where Psalm 8, verses 4 to 8 are quoted. So the epistle to the Hebrews declares that because Jesus has gone through the experience of living and the suffering of death, he is crowned with glory and honor. Exactly as Psalm 8, verse 5 says, you see, the supremacy of Jesus over the works of God's hand was witnessed because who could calm the raging sea? Jesus. Who could heal the blind? Jesus. Who could, who could raise the dead? Jesus. And it goes on to make it clear that Jesus' glory and honor is because of his saving work for man. Now, what do we do with the glory and honor we receive? Well, Jesus answers that also. He's in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And there he says, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify thee. So like Jesus, I believe we should glory, glorify God with whatever glory he gives to us. So now we get to the point and the question, what is man? See, in verse 3, David describes how God's creation is the work of his fingers. David really sees that even the universe is small compared to God. But after David has considered God's majesty and splendor in his creation, and that consideration has taken David from the magnitude of the heavens to the mystery of the mother's womb. And he cannot help but wonder what is his place in creation, as we should wonder. Verse 4 again: What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him? See, this is the main point of this psalm. What is man? What is man compared to the sovereign creator of the universe? Now the word care describes how God is looking down upon man with mercy, favor, and regard. And that should be good news. God is doing that. We should also see if you ask the question, why are we the object of his, his attention? It's because he chooses to. Why does God care for man? Because he chooses to. See, Psalm 8 should evoke a great sense of awe in us. And it should help give us a proper perspective of ourselves in, the, in creation. Why would the creator of the vast heavens concern himself with us? Why did he concern himself with me? Because he chose to. So as we look at the, as we look at this in the light of Jesus, we must remember that God could have visited judgment upon us as our sins deserved. But instead, he's provided salvation for us. So I hope you see that verse four foretells the gospel. Now the living Bible translates verse four to say, I cannot understand how you, God, can bother with mere puny man to pay attention to him. See, it's it's the antithesis of the summary statements O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man? <laughs> See, David sees the vastness of the heavens, the whole the created order, the intricacies of life, and has to ask himself, What is man? How can any man puff himself up under the absolute majesty and glory of God? You know, why does why does God crown man with glory? Why does God Uniquely care for man. Well, I don't think it's because we can feel, to make us feel good about ourselves. And I don't think it's because we can puff ourselves up. And I don't think it's so we can revel in our own self-importance. Because it's not about us. It's about God. And we should be in awe of God. And have a proper, proper perspective of our own self-worth. Because we are nothing Without God, you go back to Genesis. Because of God, we were created in His image. We didn't make ourselves into God's image. He created us in His image. And because of God, we are significant. It's also important to remember the verbs here are imperfect. And what it means is that God does and continues to give thought to man. God does and continues to care for man. And I think this speaks wonderfully of God's patience. See, the gospel permeates this psalm. God's ultimate expression of care was fulfilled in Jesus. And you see that in Hebrews chapter 2. And God's care was initiated by God alone. And therefore... Since God does the initiating, we must have a personal dependence upon Him to save us. We are sinners in a broken world, and we can't fix it. Now, John Bunyan wrote in a wonderful little book, the title of it is The Saint's Knowledge of Christ's Love. And in it he writes, which is... Kind of old English, but bear with me. When we think his mercy is clean gone, and that ourselves are free among the dead, and of the number he remembereth no more, then he can reach us and cause that again we stand before him. Now, if I want to paraphrase that a bit, if you think God will no longer be merciful to you, and when you think God has abandoned you, and when you think god will not remember you then god can reach you and restore you to fellowship you see when we stand before the sovereign creator of the universe do we realize just how filthy we were before or apart from the gospel do we realize that God knows what's in our hearts? Do we stand before the sovereign God of the universe and, like Isaiah, have woe-is-me moments? And sometimes do, I want, do we wonder, that we're, are we still saved? And I wonder that at times. I do. I have. I can admit that. And yet... And yet I remember that I should have died in 1954. But God gave me another day. And since then, he has given me the days to serve him. I've not always been a faithful servant. But God's grace has allowed me to continue to serve him. What is man? What is man that God would care for him? You think about it. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. What is man that, through your obedience, you purchase full and complete righteousness that you impute to us? Think, you think about it. Oh Jesus, what is man that you took upon yourself all the guilt necessary as a propitiation to a righteous God? Oh Jesus, what is man that you offer the gift of salvation? Because we know that it's only when we acknowledge our sin and turn from our sin and call on the Christ who died for us that we have any hope of being saved. You see, O oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And human life is sacred and human life is precious. And God is sovereign over human life. And sometimes it's whether we like it or not. You know, we live in a fallen world, and yet we're called to be a light unto that world, the salt of the earth. We live in a world that practically worships abortion. But I have to ask, do not the unborn deserve even one day? If God so grants it to them. And we live in a world that can so easily dispose of the elderly and the disabled. And yet, do not the disabled deserve another day if God so grants it to them? Don't the elderly deserve another day if God so grants it to them? Because you see, we should be a light to the world. Not what I see at times. not speaking of here but i see at times vitriolic hatred coming out of the mouths of people claiming to be christian i hear of people claiming to be christian wanting god's judgment to come down on people but is that right because i think shouldn't we desire another day for the unsaved your friends your neighbors, your enemies, or your family? Desire another day for them so so that God's good news will reach their ears? Should we not desire one more day for a person to understand their need for a Savior? And should we not desire that by God's grace, the unsaved could be saved today, this day? Or is it our role to decide who's beyond hope and who deserves to live and who deserves to die? So since God cares for mankind and that care continues on, I think that we should also care and care for the souls of others, that they may join us, join us in fellowship and join us in heaven. So, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth for caring for mankind and providing a way of salvation.